following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. In the 1930s in Nazi Germany, there was a Jewish man named Paul Schneider, and he was taken to one of the concentration camps that Germany was running at the time. Uh, 1938 was Hitler's 49th birthday. And on that day, they marched all the prisoners out of their barracks. They lined them up, and they had the Nazi swastika flag flying. And they forced all the prisoners to remove their berets, their, their caps, and venerate the Nazi flag. And quickly, all of the prisoners removed their headgear, except for one man, Paul Schneider, who refused to remove his cap. And he was, as a result, beaten with an oxhide whip. And it was the first of several times that Schneider received that treatment while he was in that concentration camp for refusing to venerate that symbol of the Nazi regime. It's a totally different story from a totally different time and a different culture, but it represents some of what is going on in the story in Daniel chapter 3. A powerful empire forcing its subjects to venerate a symbol of that empire and an act of defiance by a person or a group of people who refuse to pledge allegiance to the empire, risking a massive cost to themselves, even to their lives. But of course, the story in Daniel 3 is unique, uh, not only because it's in God's word, but because of the way that God comes and supernaturally intervenes in this story to rescue Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. That's what makes this story so powerful and so dramatic. And so let's dive in. It's a well-known story. It's familiar, I know, to many of you. But let's see if we can hear it afresh this morning and allow God to speak to us afresh through it. So we've got King Nebuchadnezzar, and he sets up this huge statue. It's called an image of gold that he has had constructed. We don't know exactly what the statue's made of uh, or exactly what it represents. We, sorry, we do know it's made of gold. We don't know exactly what it represents. It could be a statue of the king himself. Some people think it's of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that's possible. It's also just as likely that this was an image of one of the Babylonian gods, possibly the chief god, Marduk, who was the supreme god of all these various other Babylonian deities that people worshipped. That's probably the most likely scenario because if Nebuchadnezzar wanted people just to worship him directly, he didn't need a statue. He could have just encouraged people, told people to worship him. So he's probably setting up an image of one of the deities, one of the Babylonian deities. And he does this in a huge field, a big plain, and he gets everybody there from the province of Babylon and he hires an orchestra to play made up of all these strange instruments, like a zither. Who knows what a zither is? Got no idea. Maybe we need one of these in our worship band. I don't know. But these instruments are all repeated several times in the text. You notice that? And he gets this orchestra to play, and at the sound of the orchestra, everybody is to fall down and worship the image, venerate this, this image, which, of course, everybody does, except these three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the image. They are then hauled before the king by some of his other advisors, who were obviously jealous of these guys, jealous of the Jews, jealous of the way these guys had been promoted. And these three men are brought before the king. And this is really a complete embarrassment to Nebuchadnezzar, because 
These three guys are among his most senior advisors, his most senior officials in the kingdom. They have considerable authority over the affairs of Babylon. And so for the king to have some of his senior aides deliberately defying one of his decrees is a big problem for him. And so he gives them an opportunity to remedy the situation. And he says, guys, we are going to have the orchestra play one more time. They're going to do a special number just for you. And when you hear the orchestra playing, you had better bow down or else. And I love the way that these guys then respond to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 16. Just the coolness and the calmness with which they respond here. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, such important words, such good words to remember when your prayers don't get answered, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, let's just pause the story there, understand what's going on. Why is it so important for these guys not to worship this image? Why do they make this decision? They could have potentially justified the situation and thought, well, you know, we'll, 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 we'll go along with this physically, we'll bow down to the statue, but our minds aren't really in it, our hearts aren't really in it, we're really just going to continue to love God even though we have to bow down to the statue over here. But they didn't do that. They didn't feel like they could justify it that way. Because I think in their minds in this moment probably were the words of the very first two commandments that God ever gave to the nation of Israel. The first of the two, two of the first ten commandments. Let me just read them to you. Refresh your memory. You don't need to turn there. But just listen to these. The first two of the ten commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's pretty clear cut, isn't it? The first two of the Ten Commandments speak specifically to this issue of worshipping idols, worshipping images other than the one true living God. And remember, it's this problem of idolatry that has gotten Israel into the position that it is in at this point. It's because of their idolatries. It's because of worshipping various other gods and bowing down before the gods of the nations around them that God has judged them and led them into exile and allowed Babylon to conquer them and take them away from their homeland. So idolatry has already been a huge problem for Israel. And now in Babylon, in the context of their exile, idolatry continues to be a massive problem because now they're surrounded by people who are worshipping all kinds of gods, all kinds of deities, and encouraging them and sometimes forcing them to do the same. And so these guys need to make a decision, and they do. They recognize that the only way to stay faithful to God in exile is to refuse to bow down to idols, refuse to worship this image, this idol. Now, it's easy for us to assume that idolatry and the worship of idols and so on is just a primitive issue. It's just an ancient issue. We don't have these kinds of images today. We don't have these big statues of gold that we're going to bow down physically and worship. We don't do this kind of thing. That was just for primitive ancient peoples. We've kind of progressed beyond that now. Idolatry is not an issue for us. But I want to suggest that idolatry today 
is even more of an issue than it was for ancient Israel. Precisely because of the fact that idols are harder to detect. I mean, that image was obvious. It was prominent. And the worship was overt. But today, idols are so often unseen. They're harder to identify. And so as a result, they just proliferate. And idolatry, I think, is far more rampant than we think it is because we don't think it's idolatry. So we need to ask ourselves, what does this kind of, what does idol worship look like in our context? What does idolatry look like today? If we're not bowing down before gold statues, what are we doing? And how can we resist the pull of idolatry in our lives? To understand this, we need to understand something about the human person, something about who we are as human beings. That fundamentally, as, as human beings, we are worshippers. It's who we are. Created to worship. We are, it's part of our DNA. We are worshippers. And we are constantly worshipping. We're always worshipping something or someone. You might not think so. You might say, well, I, that's not me. I, I don't like worship. I'm not really into worship. I'm not really a worshipper. But the, I guarantee you, you have been worshipping all week. You have been worshipping something. You've been worshipping someone. Our lives are filled with worship. We just don't recognize it, but it's basic to who we are. We're created to worship. That in and of itself is a good thing. But what have you been worshipping? See, to worship something doesn't necessarily mean to physically bow down to it. It doesn't necessarily mean to sing songs to it or about it. It simply means to give something our greatest allegiance. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted is the allegiance, the greatest allegiance of his subjects. That's what the Nazi regime wanted, the primary allegiance of their subjects. And that's what the various gods of the world want from us, our allegiance, our primary allegiance. To worship something is to build our life on that thing. It's to center ourselves around that thing. It's to orbit our existence around something. And we all do this. We've all got that thing or those things it's the object of our greatest and deepest affection. It's our greatest desire. It's that thing our heart loves more than anything else. What is that thing? That thing that we are drawn to. You might not even have it yet, but that thing that we desire, that thing that we are drawn to, that thing that just drives us, that engine that runs our life, what is that thing? That is the thing we're worshipping. Our hearts are always looking for something to worship. Our hearts are always restless, looking for something to attach to, looking for something to Velcro onto. And when our hearts find that thing, they pull the rest of us along. They pull our time towards that thing. They pull our money towards that thing. They pull our mental and emotional resources and energies towards that thing. Once our hearts latch on to something, it's incredibly difficult to stop that magnetic pull of our lives just being drawn towards that thing. And that becomes the thing that we worship. It's incredibly natural, this process. You don't have to try to worship. You don't have to work really hard. In fact, what's hard is not worshipping. What, what's hard is working against the pull of our hearts towards those things. Have you ever had that experience of trying to keep a beach ball underwater? You know, an inflated beach ball, keeping it underwater in a swimming pool? And what happens? It pops up. pops up under your legs, beside you, in front of you. It just finds a way. This is what it does. This is how our hearts work. Our hearts find a way of 
orientating us towards the things that they love. Those objects of our greatest desire become the things that we worship naturally and subtly every single day. It just happens. We are worshippers. Now, if that thing or those things that we are worshipping are not the one true living God, then those things are idols or images. They're idols. But here's the thing. Idols are almost always really good things. See, we kind of have this perception like idols are just inherently bad. And to be fair, that's how it was with the statue, wasn't it? That statue, that image of gold, that was just bad. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing redemptive about that. That's just caught up with the pagan religion of Babylon. That should never have been created. But idols in our lives and in our world are very often good things. Listen to what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Can we pop that quote up, Malcolm? We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as an idol, especially the very best things in life. That just blows it wide open, doesn't it, in terms of what can be an idol. What often happens is things reach a tipping point. They're good things, inherently good things, but they become God things. The problem is not the bad things. The problem is when the good things become the God things. When good things in our lives, really good things, important things, tip over and they become a consuming focus, they become an obsession, they become the defining reality, they become the thing our lives are orbiting around rather than those things finding their orbit around the one true living God. That's idolatry. But you can see how hard this is to detect because we're dealing with things that are good and true and right in and of themselves. It can be hard to tease this out. So let me mention a few things that in our own culture, in our own culture of spiritual exile, can easily become idols for us. As a list, you can add to the list, there'll be other things in your mind. Materialism and consumerism, these are such huge cultural idols for us. Again, nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with earning money, nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with having stuff, nothing wrong with being a consumer of products and services. But so easily our hearts can attach to money. Our hearts can attach to our stuff or our lifestyle or whatever it is. And by the way, you don't need to have money for money to be an idol. You don't need to have a lot of money. You may desire, your idol may be something you don't even have yet. Your idol may be something that you desire that level of income. You desire that lifestyle. You desire that thing. You don't even have it, but it becomes your preoccupying focus. Idols are not necessarily things we already have in our hands. They can be things that we long for and we magnetically, our hearts are pulling us towards those things. And materialism, consumerism, it's always driven by the word next, isn't it? Next, the next pay bracket, the next promotion the next income level so that I can get the next house, so that we can get the next car, so I can get the next pair of shoes, so I can buy the next handbag, so we can go on the next holiday, so we can get our kids in the next school or the right school or whatever, so that we can do this, read at the next restaurant, so I can buy the next guitar pedal, so that I can have the next Xbox game. It's the next, it's the next, it's the next. Always, this is the tyranny of the next. Welcome to the consumptive culture that we find ourselves in so easily. These things can become idols. None of those things I just mentioned are bad in and of themselves. And therein lies the problem. We need to examine our hearts and ask, have these things 
moved from good things to God things. Our career can easily become an idol. I think especially for men, our career tends to trump everything else. That is the one thing that we are focused on and we will make decisions around that. Everything else must orbit around the career trajectory that we are on. It comes above relationship with God. I know we don't say that, but functionally, it comes above family sometimes, comes above church, the career. We are driven. We are tunnel vision in our career path. We can make idols of people, especially in a celebrity intoxicated culture, easily make idols of people. I had a woman in our church come up to me the other week, and she said, "Um, I have a confession to make. She said, I think I've made the boss into an idol. What she meant is that she'd been to see Bruce Springsteen the night before. And so she just enjoyed the concert. I don't think that was actually idolatry, really. But we can drift into this, can't we? We become intoxicated with certain people. Uh, We just become obsessed following the Twitter feeds and every minute detail of their lives. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We can so easily make idols out of celebrity or just our celebrity culture in general. We could go on and on, unmasking the idols of our culture. You can add to that list. But what are those things for you that have tipped over from being good in and of themselves to now occupying a place in your life that only God should occupy? Because we can sit here, honestly, guys, we can sit here, we can sing the songs, we can listen to the sermons, and we can say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. But if we had spiritual glasses to see our hearts we would find there are strings coming out of our hearts that are attached to all kinds of other things in the world. And that what we say in our songs on Sundays is so often betrayed by our lives. I know idolatry is a strong word, but the Bible uses it, and so we need to use it as well. We can be an idolatrous people by not giving our allegiance to Christ alone. So let's get on the hopeful side of this, though. I mean, we could spend the whole morning just going through one idol after another, thoroughly depressing ourselves, but let's try and find some hope here. And I think the hope is here, in the story. It's in this narrative. Let's keep going in the story. You have this wonderful act of defiance by these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Now, that word attitude is, in Hebrew, literally the word image. Same word that's used of the statue. You have this image of gold that everyone's worshipping, and then you have the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And that image of his face changes from just maybe annoyance to fury and rage at the defiance of these three guys. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. He ties up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and has them thrown into this furnace. It's so hot that even the soldiers who throw them in die. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and he says, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? Look, I see four men walking around, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, who is this mysterious fourth man? Who is this character? A couple of theories on this. Some people say it's an angel who appears there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's usually uh, argued on the basis of what Nebuchadnezzar says later on in the chapter. If you look, he says, God sent an angel from heaven to rescue them. But then you've got to remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not the most reliable theologian in the Bible. Okay, 
So we probably shouldn't put too much stock in his words. The other view, and it really is the only other view, is that somehow this is God himself. That somehow here, God actually shows up in the blazing furnace. And I think we could take this a step further and be even slightly more specific. Because if you ask the question, if this is God appearing in the fiery furnace, he looks like a human being. Nebuchadnezzar clearly identifies him as a man, and yet he looks different to other men. He looks like a son of the gods. Now, when you think about God appearing as a man in human form, but someone who is unique from all other people, whose name springs to mind? Jesus, right? Yes, I've taught you something in 10 years. Fantastic. Jesus, it could be, and there is a level of conjecture here, but it could be that what we're seeing in this story is the pre-incarnate Christ. It could be, in fact, and this is argued, but it could be that this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that Jesus shows up ahead of his birth in Bethlehem. It may be Jesus himself standing with these men in the blazing furnace. And if that's the case, and we don't know for sure, but if that's the case, it is so fitting and it is so appropriate because you think you've got the image of gold and then you've got the image of Nebuchadnezzar's face and then who is it in the New Testament who is described as the one true image of the invisible God? Jesus. See, the reason God doesn't want us to worship idols is not because he wants to spoil our party. It's because he's already sent us the image. He's already provided the image, the one true image of the living God, and it is Christ. And we only bear the image of God because of Jesus. We are images of the image. It's Jesus. This is the reason God gave those two commandments to Israel in the first place, even though Jesus hadn't turned up on the scene yet. He tells them not to worship images because the one true image is coming. And it is Christ alone who is the image before whom we should be worshiping. It is Christ alone before whom we should be bowing down. It is Christ alone whom we should be giving our ultimate allegiance. It's Jesus. He should be our greatest desire, shouldn't he? He should be the one in whom we find true satisfaction. He should be the one who is meeting our deepest needs. He should be the one who we are revering and paying homage to. He should be the one who is the desire of our heart, who we are orbiting our lives around, building our lives upon. He should be the defining center of our lives. So let me ask you just a really simple question this morning. Do you love Jesus? Not in an airy, fairy, lovey-dovey kind of way, but do you love Jesus? Really search your heart on that one. Do you really love Jesus? Is this all just kind of going through the motions for you? Is this all trying to just play a game that maybe was real a long time ago and is not real anymore? Do you really love Jesus? At the deepest level of your being. Do you desire Jesus more than a particular lifestyle? Do you love Jesus more than your job? Do you really love Jesus more than your career? Do you really love Christ more than you love money? You really love Jesus more than all these other things that are competing for our attention? I suspect that for a lot of us, the answer is, I want to. I want to. I want to love Jesus that much. 
I desire to desire him. But if I'm honest with myself, my heart is still pulled in so many directions by these idols, by these other things. My heart is Velcroed on to these other things, and I cannot detach it. And this is where we need to begin by coming back to the declaration that these three guys made and making that our own statement. In the face of an idolatrous culture, we've got to be prepared. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are really going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to take that name, then we need to be prepared to say with these guys, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. We need to be prepared as followers of Jesus, as those who pledge allegiance to Christ alone. We've got to be prepared to say, yes, we may live in this culture. We may live in this state of exile. We may be doing time in our own Babylon here, but we are not going to worship the gods of our culture. We are not going to worship the same gods that everyone else in our workplace is running after. We are not going to bow down before the same images that everyone else is bowing down before, no matter how great the pressure no matter how great the pull, no matter how embedded these things already are in our hearts, we're not going to do it because we love Jesus. And He alone will be the one whom we worship, not just with our words, but with our lives. And for you, that might mean looking at those things that have tipped over to becoming God things and breaking some habits around them. It might mean cutting off the oxygen supply to some of those things that have really gotten a hold in your heart. It might mean reprioritizing your time. It might mean reprioritizing your budget. It might mean reprioritizing the self-talk going on in your head. Reprioritizing where all your mental energy is going, where your emotional energy is going. Just having a good hard look at your life and asking, is there a way that something has just got its claws into my life and it was a good thing and so I let it in, but now I can actually see that it's got a hold on me? Did that thing, that thing that was really good, has actually shifted now from me controlling it to it controlling me. And I'm actually in orbit around this thing now. These things are so hard to detect, and that is why we need to come honestly before God and allow Him to search our hearts, surface things that have become idols, and then break the habits that are continuing to attach our hearts to those things. But it's not enough just to break those habits. It's not enough just to reject these idols over here. We need to replace the idols. If all you do is push these idols, these, these things aside, they just, you just create another void for 10 more idols to take its place. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. We will continually produce more idols, or maybe more accurately, we'll, our hearts will continue to seek out and attach to things around us that we will turn into idols because our hearts are selfish and so often turn away from their true center of Christ. We need to lead our hearts back to Christ. We need to teach our hearts to attach themselves to Jesus above all else. We need to say, in Christ alone, I'm going to be satisfied. Christ alone has my allegiance. Everything else is going to have to find its place around that. He will be the one whom I worship. And that is going to come about through a whole range of habits in our lives, the smallest of things. It's going to be through spending time in God's Word that we say, I'm going to prioritize this, not just because it's a good Christian thing to do, but because by reading Scripture, I'm leading my heart back to Jesus. I'm teaching my heart. This is what we've got to do. If you just, if you just allow your heart to lead you, I guarantee your heart's going to attach itself to so many different things. Our heart's not designed to be a leader. It's designed to be a follower. You lead your heart. 
You show your heart where it needs to find its home, and that is in Christ. Our hearts are restless, said Augustine, until they find their rest in thee, talking to God. So as we spend time in God's word, we're not just doing, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means of directing our hearts back to Christ. It's why we worship as we do on Sunday. We are leading our hearts back to Christ. It's why we take communion. We are leading our hearts back to the cross. It's why we pray, not just here, but cultivating a life of prayer because we are directing our hearts back to Christ. We are teaching our hearts. Our hearts will so quickly wander off attach themselves to all these other things. We've got to be intentional by God's grace and leading our hearts and just anchoring them back at the cross and saying, that's where you belong. This is the one whom you worship. At the moment, God's dealing with me on this and he's showing me some things in my life that honestly have become idols, things that I've been desiring more than I've been desiring Jesus, things that I've been putting more value on than I've been placing value on my relationship with God, things that I've been orientating myself around too much, things that have just become too significant in my life. And I'll tell you, the process of God doing that, revealing those things, and then prompting us to change those things, it's painful. I know all this can sound maybe easy, but it's not. It's going to feel like you're in the fiery furnace. If we are serious about this, if we are serious about purging the idols from our lives and really directing our hearts back to Christ alone. It is going to be painful, and it's going to feel like you're in a blazing furnace. It's not easy. But the the assurance we have is that even in the blazing furnace, Jesus is with us. He's right there. The fourth man, he's right there. And he is with us. And he will hold us as we look to him. And he'll lead us out the other side. Without a hair in our head being singed, he'll lead us out the other side. And he'll lead us into a place of freedom. Isn't that what we long for? that place of freedom where we're just not shackled by all of these stupid things that just hold us back and trip us up and entangle us and stop us from truly pursuing Christ. God desires to lead us to a place of freedom. Wouldn't it be amazing if that picture of the beach ball that we're trying to hold underwater was our heart longing for Christ? not longing for a whole lot of other things. Wouldn't it be amazing if we got to the point where we directed our heart so strongly towards Jesus that it becomes second nature? The impulse of our heart is towards Jesus. And worship of Christ becomes second nature. And when we try to suppress that, the beach ball just pops up because our hearts are so wedded to Jesus. Our hearts just have to release that pressure and they just have to find their way to Jesus. That comes about through a million habits developed over the course of our lives, and I don't think we ever finally get there. But that's the journey, until Christ returns anyway. And then that's what it'll be in the new creation. But until that day, let's lead our hearts towards Jesus. Let's deal honestly with the idols in our lives and allow God to search our heart on this, because we don't always see them. And when he does show us those things, let's, let's have the boldness, let's have the courage by God's grace to take the steps we need to take and lead our hearts back to Christ. Let's pray. I want to ask you just for a couple of minutes just to open your heart and allow God to show you if there's anything in your life that has become an idol. Just be willing enough, be brave enough to place yourself in that posture. Don't assume that you already know 
what those things are. You may be able to identify some, but there may be many, some that you don't even know about. Just open your heart, and God, we're just asking now that you would reveal to us those things, those good things, Lord, that have tipped over and they've become idols. God, hard as it is, I want to pray now around the room that you would just be bringing to our minds and bringing to our hearts those things that have got a grip, too strong a grip on our hearts. Lord, would you just be raising those? Would you be bringing those to our attention? And Father, when you're raising those, I know that there's an impulse there that we have just to suffocate that and push that away and, or justify that. God, I know that I want to justify it. I want to rationalize, God, why it's not the case and why that's not really a problem. God, would you prevent us from doing that? God, would you just shatter our pride and give us enough humility to really just be open before you and if something is there that you are just pressing on us, Lord, we want to acknowledge it and we want to confess it now, Jesus. We want to bring it before you and we want to say, God, we're sorry that we have allowed that thing, that person, that whatever. God, we're truly sorry that we have allowed that to become an idol. And we can't always even see how that's happened. But God, as we sit here this morning, we just bring that to you and we want to ask God that you'd forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our idolatries. Forgive us for all the ways that our hearts have run off after things that are not you. And Jesus, as you just pour over us, your cleansing, renewing spirit. We want to ask that you just set before us a beautiful image of Jesus. We want to ask that you would just set before us a picture of Jesus. Just like the King Nebuchadnezzar set that image of gold up. We want to pray, God, you just put in our mind's eye a picture of Jesus. And as we look at you, Jesus, Jesus, we just want to pray that you would be the one who truly satisfies. Truly satisfies us at the deepest, deepest level of our being. God, get us beyond just superficial faith. Just words. Jesus, we pray that you would be the one that our lives orbit around. And whatever you might be calling us to put in place in our life, to begin that journey, God, give us the strength to do that. Lead us into your word. Lead us into prayer. Lead us to other people who can help us. But we want to say, Jesus, you alone. You alone will have our hearts. You alone will have our allegiance. And we pray you would now give us the strength to live this out every day of our lives. We love you, Jesus. We give you our hearts. We really do. We offer them to you. We lay our lives down before you. In your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.